the first degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. We have mutual friends who told me that they were sort of boxed in and that they were pressured. And when I saw Netflix's notes to the filmmakers, I understood what they meant by that. They were being pushed by Netflix a certain direction to make law enforcement look worse. If you're gonna entertain Say it's entertainment. If you're going to make an advocacy piece, don't call it a documentary or don't keep hopping back and forth like these filmmakers did. They changed facts and edited testimony and did some things that I, as a filmmaker, would never have done. I decided that I would go ahead and make the response piece, and that's what Convicting a Murderer is. My goal is that this creates enough of a groundswell that filmmakers get together and create a voluntary code of ethical standards that we can adopt so that the public is ensured that we're not bending facts in our storytelling for the sake of a good plot. Welcome to The First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Vianek. I'm sitting here with Alexis Linkletter. What's up, Lex? Hey. Hey, hey, it's early. We have our morning voices still, I feel like. But that's like, they're kind of, they're a little raspy and sexier than usual. Honestly, I mean, it'll have the enthusiasm of just the freshness of the day. So we'll overcompensate that way. Absolutely. Um, Before we start, I wanted to remind everybody, if you're listening out there and you have a story to tell, if you have a first degree, please email us. Hello at thefirstdegreepodcast.com. I don't think that I have promoted that aspect. You know, it is the whole crux of our podcast is based on these stories. So if you are listening and you have a story, we'd love to hear it. Yeah. And if you've emailed us a long time ago, like three years ago, hypothetically, try again. Your email may have gone to spam. I'm the only one who goes through them and I get overwhelmed sometimes. So please try again. Uh, We want your stories. Absolutely. And then if you want any more first degree content, of course, join our Patreon because we have now, I think, two years of backlogged content. You'll never run out of things to listen to. Nope. And it's good stuff. It is some good stuff. All right. Well, I think that's enough of that. So let's turn down the lights and turn up your anxiety because this could be you. If you're an avid consumer of true crime content, you'll likely be all over today's case, which has become infamously controversial. And sadly, it's not because the victim is a household name or front and center of the story. There are so many true crime documentaries out there, it's reasonable to assume that these filmmakers are always doing the right thing in recounting the facts of a case. But this doesn't always happen. And in the most egregious of cases, information is manipulated to form an agenda under the guise of objectivity. So we begin today's case on October 31st of 2005. Obviously, you all know it's Halloween. So everybody was trick-or-treating, getting dressed up in costumes. I mean, one of the best days of the year. Also, late civil rights icon Rosa Parks lay in honor at the U.S. Capitol a week after her death. And this was the first time any woman had received the honor. On the pop music charts, Kanye West with Jamie Foxx was in the eighth week at number one with Gold Digger, iconic song, followed by Chris Brown, Run With It, not an iconic person at all. It's kind of crazy, but 
different story. Kind of crazy that it all just went away. (laughs) It's one of the craziest things that like, it's like my Roman empire of like, did the fact that everybody just forgot about him and Rihanna. Especially because Rihanna is so beloved, you know, it's like, how did we, how did he get away with that? But anyways, that's for another podcast. That is for another podcast. So anyways, in movie theaters, people were seeing Saw 2. Saw, the regular Saw was one of the fucking scariest movies I've ever seen. And uh, people were also seeing The Legend of Zorro, starring Antonio Banderas and Catherine Zeta-Jones. And the setting for today's story is Two Rivers, Wisconsin. Situated on the shores of Lake Michigan in Manitowoc County, the city of almost 12,000 people is located in dairy country. The city is the meeting point of the East Twin and West Twin Rivers. Early European settlers mostly came from Germany and Canada, with a sawmill and commercial fishing beginning back in the 1840s, creating the backbone of the city's local economy today. Two Rivers boasts to be the birthplace of the ice cream sundae in the 1880s. That is important Uh, information. Yes. But Two Rivers has since become notorious due to one of Netflix's most profitable and watched and talked about true crime documentary series, Making a Murderer, which was about the 2005 sexual assault and murder of 25-year-old Teresa Halbach. If you know the case, many of you may already be wholly convinced about the guilt or innocence of the convicted killers, Stephen Avery and his nephew, Brandon Dassey, named now infamous as a result of the series. And maybe your stance is based on what you observed in Making a Murderer. It's a case where we acknowledge up front that law enforcement made mistakes when conducting their investigation. And if you don't know the case, we also want to point out that there is no question that Stephen Avery was previously wrongfully convicted for an unrelated assault. But the question is, does law enforcement's failure to follow best practice here necessarily mean that Stephen and Brandon are innocent of Teresa's murder? And was the information in making a murder intentionally manipulated? Our first degree guest for today's episode is filmmaker Sean Retch, and he's been in the industry for a pretty long time, specifically in the true crime storytelling space. I started in the entertainment industry about 15, 16 years ago, doing a show called Crime Stoppers Case Files. We started in Cleveland, Ohio, then we did one in Miami and added one in Los Angeles and finally had our fourth in Chicago. Those are regionalized shows trying to solve unsolved homicides. Did that for about five years and wanted to get into film. The first movie I made was called A Murder in the Park. It was about an alleged wrongful conviction. It was sold to IFC. They put it on Netflix and Showtime. That was back in 2014. Our next one was White Boy, which is about Richard Worshey Jr., who's a juvenile, nonviolent offender who was sentenced to life in Detroit, Michigan. It was a crazy case. So let's talk about Teresa Halbach. By the fall of 2005, the 25-year-old photographer was doing freelance work for Auto Trader magazine in Minnetowoc County. The talented, kind, effervescent, and family-oriented young woman also had her own photography business. She had a gift for children's portraiture and dreamed of one day opening her own studio. Graduating from the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay, summa cum laude, Teresa coached her younger sister's volleyball team. She lost her father at just the age of eight years old, but was super close with her mom, stepdad, four siblings, and had a deep Catholic faith. Teresa had a love of music and travel. She was known for her karaoke talents and had seen more of the world than most people her age, having traveled all over the U.S., as well as Mexico, Spain, New Zealand, and Australia. By October of 2005, she'd recently moved back to her family's farm property in St. John, Calumet County, living in a farmhouse near her parents. 
Around 2.45 p.m. on October 31st, her work for Auto Trader magazine led Teresa to arrive at the 40-acre Avery Salvage Yard in Two Rivers. She had an appointment to take pictures of a vehicle being advertised in the magazine, and it was Teresa's sixth visit to the property since the previous June. But Teresa never made contact with the magazine again that day, nor did she return home. While she was close to her family, Teresa was a real social butterfly and led her own independent life. But as the days passed without any word, her loved ones became more and more concerned. On November 3rd, her mom Karen reported Teresa missing. That evening, police went to the last place Teresa was known to have been, which was the Avery Salvage Yard. Brothers Chuck, Earl, and Stephen all worked there, but only Chuck and Stephen lived on the property in separate trailers. Their sister Barbara also lived in a trailer on the property with three of her sons. At the time of Teresa's disappearance, 43-year-old Stephen was in the midst of pursuing a $36 million lawsuit against Manitowoc County. Because back in 1985, he'd been wrongfully convicted and sentenced to 32 years in prison for the sexual assault and attempted murder of a 36-year-old woman. Stephen was exonerated in 2003, after DNA testing not available at the time of his trial proved he wasn't the attacker. So, given Stephen's pending lawsuit and fear that there may be a conflict of interest, Manitowoc County requested the investigation into Teresa's disappearance be handled by the nearby Calumet County instead. But given that Calumet was much smaller, it would still be using personnel resources from Manitowoc County. The police learned that the morning of October 31st, Stephen Avery called Auto Trader Magazine specifically requesting Teresa to come take the photos, but booking the appointment under his sister's name. Stephen told detectives that Teresa arrived that day as planned, she did her job, and that he didn't see Teresa again after she left the property and headed in the direction of the interstate. But the next day, on November 4th, Stephen gave a different account, claiming he only went outside to pay Teresa after she completed the work, and then she left. The following day, on November 5th, Stephen changed his story again. Now he was saying that he went out to meet Teresa when she arrived, then she took the pictures and left after he paid her. That morning, volunteer search parties, who had received permission from one of Stephen's brothers to search the property, found Teresa's dark green 1999 Toyota RAV4 not far from the salvage yard's car crusher. The vehicle was concealed behind plywood, branches, and the hood of another car. And at the time of the discovery, Stephen wasn't there, and he was at the family cabin in Crivets, which was 100 miles north. Law enforcement was alerted, and soon officers from multiple counties descended upon the property to secure and search it. Inside Teresa's locked vehicle was her lanyard, where she usually clipped on her fob with her car key attached to it, so all the things to open her car. But the fob and the key were missing. And the license plates were also missing from the vehicle, and they were later found crumpled up inside of another vehicle at the salvage yard. Stephen claimed that the vehicle must have been driven onto the property in secret using back roads. But this couldn't really explain why his blood was found in six different parts of the RAV4 along with Teresa's. In the rear cargo section, it appeared that bloody hair had left streaks on the inside of the door near the floor. Multiple witnesses told police that they saw Stephen using a burn barrel on the property on Halloween night, and that whatever he was burning smelled like plastic. And this plastic smell turned out to be Teresa's cell phone burning in the barrel along with some other items. Stephen initially told investigators that he hadn't burned anything that week at all. And that night, he had been home all by himself, and he went to bed at 9 p.m. Then he changed his story, saying that he did actually have a fire and that he had burned some tires. 
In the following days, police seized a 22 caliber semi-automatic rifle, a 50 caliber deer hunting rifle, and a vacuum cleaner from Stephen's trailer. Tracking Teresa's scent, bloodhounds indicated that Teresa had been inside or very close to Stephen's trailer. And then, the key to Teresa's RAV4 was found on her lanyard fob in Stephen's bedroom. However, the fact that it hadn't been found until the seventh entry police had made to Stephen's trailer didn't look good. Especially because out of the three officers making these searches, two of them had been involved in Stephen's wrongful conviction case and had been deposed in Stephen's pending lawsuit. On the same day, investigators discovered the charred remnants of Teresa's cell phone inside that burn barrel. And behind Stephen's garage was also a burn pit, which was a 30 by 30 foot mound of dirt with an indentation at one end. In there, investigators found rivets from a Daisy Fuentes brand pair of jeans, tools including a hammer, shovel, rake, and screwdriver, and burnt fragments of bone and teeth, which Stephen claimed were from sheep. On November 9th, Stephen was arrested on charges of being a felon in possession of a firearm. Then six days later, he was charged with first-degree murder, sexual assault, and mutilating a corpse. He strenuously denied all charges against him and immediately began telling reporters that he had been framed by Manitowoc County over his pending lawsuit, alleging evidence like the RAV4 key and his blood had been planted. The following month, a pair of Columbia University filmmakers took an interest in the case after reading an article about it. They ultimately moved out to Wisconsin from New York for the purpose of making a documentary. Their names were Laura Riccardi and Maura Demos. They spent years, almost a decade, working on this, upended themselves from Manhattan to the middle of Wisconsin. They had a lot invested in it. In January of 2006, the remains found in the burn pit and the barrel, including the teeth fragments, were confirmed to be those of Teresa. By this time, the only DNA found on the car key from blood and sweat was confirmed as Stevens. Then, almost two months later in late February, police re-interviewed Stevens' 16-year-old nephew, Brandon Dassey. The high school sophomore was quiet, shy, and introverted, and lived on the property with his mother, Barbara. One of five siblings, he also had a learning disability, below-average IQ, and was known to be compliant and suggestible when it came to authority figures, and he had no criminal record. Brendan had only come to be on investigators' radar after an interview with one of Stephen's teen nieces. She told investigators that on Halloween night, she saw Brendan burning things with Stephen and that Brendan had been behaving strangely lately. That strange behavior was described as bouts of crying, staring into space, and abrupt weight loss. Brendan had also previously asked police, and this was way before Stephen was charged, if they thought that Stephen had raped Teresa, which was the first time that sexual assault had been mentioned at all in the case. While some of the details varied in subsequent statements, in February, Brendan told the police that on October 31st, he got off the school bus around 3.45 p.m., and then he walked home to his mom's trailer, and then he played PlayStation for two hours. After eating dinner, Brendan got a phone call from Stephen, asking Brendan to come over for a bonfire. Brendan told the police that he helped Stephen gather material from around the property, which they threw in a fire Stephen had started in the burn pit. Brendan stated that he went home at around 10 p.m. after getting a phone call from his mom. It was only now that Stephen admitted to Brendan coming over to build the bonfire, but he denied anything else occurring regarding Teresa. Investigators then learned that Brendan had helped Stephen clean the floor of the garage the night of Halloween. According to the Post-Crescent, Brendan then told detectives that when delivering a letter to Stephen's trailer Halloween afternoon, he heard a woman screaming. 
Later at the burn pit, he saw parts of what appeared to be a human body, obscured underneath tree branches, but he denied having anything to do with Teresa's death or disposal of her remains. It's key to point out here that Brendan wasn't being interviewed with an adult or a lawyer present, though both he and his mom consented to this. And during one 48-hour period alone, Brendan was interrogated four different times, including three times within a 24-hour period. Detectives used something called the read technique, which basically uses strategies to get somebody more and more comfortable with telling the truth. And this is widely used by law enforcement, but it has been criticized for producing false confessions if it was used inappropriately. Obviously, this decision was questionable, given Brendan's disability and his vulnerability as a minor. This left detectives open to allegations by the defense that Brendan had been coerced into confessing, though the officers stood by their decision to proceed in their assessment that he was providing a genuine confession. When police next interviewed Brendan on March 1st, again alone, he dropped a big bombshell. According to the Milwaukee Magazine, he now said that on Halloween afternoon, as he rode his bicycle to his uncle's trailer, he looked inside a burn barrel which contained a digital camera and a cell phone. He also saw a RAV4 parked near Stephen's garage. Brendan stated that when Stephen opened the trailer door after Brendan knocked, he looked sweaty and that he was only partially dressed. Taking Brendan into the kitchen... Stephen told his nephew he'd been having sex with a woman, proceeding to take Brendan into the bedroom where Teresa lay shackled to the bed, unclothed. Brendan told law enforcement that Stephen instructed him to rape Teresa while Stephen watched, which Brendan did because he said he wanted to know what sex felt like. When Brendan was done, Stephen told him he did a good job. Brendan got dressed and followed Stephen into the living room where they watched TV with Teresa still on the bed. Stephen told Brendan that he was going to kill Teresa and after 10 minutes took a knife from the kitchen. Brendan stated the pair returned to the bedroom where Stephen stabbed Teresa. He handed the knife to Brendan, instructing him to participate, which he did. Teresa was still alive, so Stephen choked her. And at this point, Brendan believed that Teresa was dead. Stephen and Brendan then carried Teresa's body out of the trailer to the garage where Stephen had parked Teresa's vehicle, placing her body in the RAV4's cargo area. Brendan stated that Stephen planned on driving Teresa's body to the salvage yard's pond to throw her body in the water, but upon realizing the water level was so low, Stephen changed his mind. Laying Teresa's body on the floor of the garage, Stephen fetched a 22 rifle from above his bed. When he returned, he fired 10 bullets into Teresa's body. Stephen then decided to burn Teresa's body in the burn pit, so he and Brendan ran around the property gathering old tires and a wooden cabinet as combustive material. He then drove Teresa's vehicle to where it was found and concealed it with plywood and branches before walking back to the trailer and placing the car key in a drawer. He removed the license plates, crumpled them up, and put them in another vehicle on the property. Brendan helped Stephen clean the blood off the garage floor using gasoline, paint thinner, and bleach before carrying Teresa to the end of the burn pit where a fire was lit. Stephen and Brendan threw tires and branches on top of Teresa as well as the bedsheets in Teresa's bloody clothing. Afterwards, the pair watched some TV in the living room before further cleaning the trailer to get rid of evidence. Brennan said that he went home at around 9.30 p.m., leaving Stephen supervising the fire at the burn pit. Stephen's other nephew, Blaine, claimed to see Stephen by the burn pit at this time as well. Stephen later told him that he used buckets to remove some of Teresa's remains from the burn pit to the barrel, also scattering them around gravel quarry outside of the Avery property. On March 1st, Brendan was charged in connection with Teresa's sexual assault and murder. 
but a press conference held by a special prosecutor named Ken Kratz following Brendan's arrest was another low point for investigators in this case. Gruesome, graphic, and insensitive details of Teresa's murder were publicly broadcast in a way that reflected extraordinarily poorly on the Calumet County DA's office, and Ken Kratz has since admitted he handled this extremely unprofessionally. And by now, shell casings and bullet fragments, including a fully intact bullet that had Teresa's DNA on it, had been found in Stephen's garage under an air compressor. But Stephen doubled down, denying everything and attempting to explain everything away. And besides, forensic technicians couldn't prove that the stains on the garage floor were blood at all. By late January of 2007, Stephen's sexual assault and kidnapping charges were dismissed, given key prosecution witness, Brendan, now refused to testify against his uncle because he'd recanted his confession. And at the trial, Stephen claimed that investigators planted his blood at the scene by collecting it from his bathroom. According to Stephen, there was blood in his bathroom because of a gash that he had on his finger. But the amount of blood needed to be planted made the story pretty unlikely especially because the blood in the car was found to have come from a fresh wound. The alleged blood planting was a key part of Stephen's defense. His attorneys claimed it had been planted from a vial which had been stored at the Manitowoc County Courthouse ever since Stephen's 1996 appeal. When the vial was examined, it apparently had like a hole in the top, like a needle prick hole, which the defense portrayed as the smoking gun, proving that someone had taken blood out of this vial and planted it. They alleged that there was a lot of police corruption happening in this case, and the Making a Murderer documentary series also focused heavily on this. On March 18th, 44-year-old Stephen was found guilty of first-degree intentional homicide and being a felon in possession of a firearm, but he was acquitted of mutilating a corpse. He was sentenced to life in prison without parole, plus five years for the weapons charge to run concurrently. At Brendan's trial the following month, the 17-year-old was tried as an adult. He testified in his own defense, now saying he couldn't explain why he supposedly lied when he originally confessed. His new account was that he only was present at the fire and helped clean up the garage, and that he got the details in his previous confession out of a book, but he never mentioned the detectives coercing him. A request for Brendan's videotaped confession to be suppressed was denied by the judge, who determined Brendan's statements were voluntary. As Brendan didn't take the plea, this pretty much sealed his fate. Because despite the lack of physical evidence tying Brendan to the scene, some of his police statements corroborated evidence that was found at the scene. He was found guilty of being party to first-degree intentional homicide, mutilation of a corpse, and second-degree sexual assault. In December of 2015, the Netflix documentary Making a Murderer was released, and it quickly became the jewel in the streaming platform's crown. The publicity got Stephen a new hotshot lawyer, I think we've all seen her, Kathleen Zellner, who took on his case in January of 2016. And our first degree, Sean, was also intrigued by all the hype it got. Back when my first movie came out, I actually watched Making a Murderer because it helped us a great deal. It got people more into true crime. So I watched it and was a fan and liked it a lot. We all know how the hit documentary became a global phenomenon and sent true crime fans into a frenzy outraged at what appeared to be a miscarriage of justice. But what if we told you that some of the material in Making a Murderer was at best manipulated and at worst fabricated? 
that the team behind the series lied and even edited footage of witnesses testifying so that their testimony had a different context? Would you change your position on the case? And what does it tell us about the power of content creators? To answer all these questions, you know the drill, we gotta go back. Amidst the runaway success of the award-winning documentary, there are some who claim the filmmakers lacked any sort of transparency or ethics around the true intent of their project. It lit a fire under people who came forward saying the filmmakers misled and deceived the audience, who assumed they were getting the whole story, to get them on Stephen Avery's side, and omitted key evidence contradicting their narrative. One of the biggest reasons many people believe police purposely planted evidence in Teresa's case was due to Stephen's previous wrongful conviction. It wasn't long before Sean, too, became aware of the documentary's shortcomings. He was shocked to learn the filmmakers manipulated the storyline to such a degree. I read a couple articles that said, well, here's what they left out, and they left a lot out. And they changed facts and edited testimony and did some things that I, as a filmmaker, would never have done. Broadly speaking, these sorts of concerns raise the question of whether we all need to be a bit more skeptical when consuming true crime content. And of course, the answer is yes. Media literacy is important. Sean felt the documentary crossed such gross ethical boundaries that he was compelled to create a contrasting project to shed light on the bias. So he started his work on his own project in 2018 called Convicting a Murderer. So I was sitting around waiting for someone to make the response piece, and no one ever did. So I decided that once I was approached by some of the players who were hurt by this, I decided that I would go ahead and make the response piece, and that's what Convicting a Murderer is. Sean wasn't out to make any sort of political statement, but he noted that a disproportionate amount of scrutiny was leveled at law enforcement and specific investigators when the audience didn't have all the facts. What people don't understand is that Calumet County had a very small sheriff's department. Manitowoc County had a larger sheriff's department. So Calumet County never had the manpower to fully conduct this investigation. The state should have supplemented this with troopers, with many more state investigators, gotten neighboring counties involved or city police departments involved so that Manitowoc would not have had to have been that involved. It's really unfortunate that two Manitowoc County officers found that key. I think Stephen would have been found guilty without the key, but it's really unfortunate that they found the key the fifth, sixth, seventh time entering the building when they were there for some other specific searches, like looking for handcuffs, looking for a gun. That time they happened to have been cataloging his porn. That was a mistake. They admit it was a mistake and that it was a bad look. Another mistake was how certain evidence was handled. Another mistake was not photographing before they started their excavation. Ken Kratz, the special prosecutor, admits that his press conference was a mistake, that it could have tainted the jury pool. But then he notes that they didn't ask for a change of venue. So a lot of mistakes were made. If somebody gets super impassioned about a case and they don't have a law enforcement background, they see a couple little mistakes and say, where there's smoke, there's fire, there's something wrong here. It's a disproportionate response to some of those mistakes, in my opinion. I think that Andrew Colburn was probably the most hurt by making a murderer. I think that Tom Fossbender was affected. I think law enforcement in general in Manitowoc and Calumet counties were profoundly affected. Police around the country were affected. This further besmirched Police officers who, in my estimation, are people who are out willing to die for us every day. And it's just awful that a few bad apples will destroy 
a whole vocation. I thought that it was piling on to something that was sort of a cultural zeitgeist moment. And I thought Making a Murder was taking advantage of that. And I thought it was important to, to tell the other side of the story. So how and why does bias happen in true crime projects in general and why in Teresa's case in particular? Well, if somebody is using narrative filmmaking techniques to tell a factual story, things get skewed and it kind of is unavoidable. And it didn't help that the Netflix filmmakers were open with Stephen Avery about telling him that they thought he'd been framed, referring to the documentary as his movie. Yet they rejected any suggestion that their project was coming from a place of advocacy, despite the fact that what was presented wasn't the whole truth as they claimed. We have prison recordings of them telling Stephen they're making his movie for him, that they had to go back to making his film. That's not objective filmmaking or journalism or documentary filmmaking. That's just straight advocacy or more. I can't say with authority why they did what they did. We have mutual friends who told me that they were sort of boxed in and that they were pressured. And when I saw Netflix's notes to the filmmakers, I understood what they meant by that. They were being pushed by Netflix a certain direction to make law enforcement look worse. As far as going, saying that law enforcement could have been, been involved in the murder of Teresa Halbach, which is just ridiculous. So it could be that they put over their life savings into this and then realized, you know, man, this is a pretty bad guy, but we've got to see this through. I contend it still would have been a good project if they just left it alone and told the truth and hadn't Franken-edited the thing into, into what it became. But for whatever reason, that's how it ended up being edited and the story just had to be corrected. So I can't say what was in their heads at the time. If you're going to make an advocacy piece, which ours is an advocacy piece, for the law enforcement side, you know, say it's an advocacy piece, but don't call it a documentary or don't keep hopping back and forth like these filmmakers did from, oh, we were trained in narrative filmmaking techniques. Oh, we're documentarians. They use journalistic privilege to not have their film go into discovery, yet then they claim they weren't journalists and weren't held to journalistic standards when they were called out. Sean gave us an insight into how a certain story angle can become compromised once money is involved, depending on who's funding the production. The way the sausage is made on TV, it isn't glamorous, but this has a huge impact on the editorial direction of the final product in shaping public's perception. That's the reason we don't do co-productions. We make everything on spec. We pay for it ourselves. We have investors, we pay for it. We create a good solid finished product. We auction it off. And then all the people who backed us make their money back. That's how we do it. If you co-produce with a network, not only are you very limited in how much you can earn, but you have to take their notes. Even from the Daily Wire, I could say no to a note if I wanted to. I had final cut throughout the whole thing. There's an independence that comes in working on spec. If you do a co-production, the production company is your master. And God forbid the person who loved your project and came in gets fired and they put someone else in it who says, eh, make them the bad guy. Eh, maybe she did it. I enjoy and encourage any filmmakers to, I know it's tough to raise the money sometimes, but try and have the freedom of operating independently and then just sell it at the end when you don't have to take their notes. Of course, you're probably wondering what the major discrepancies were in making a murderer. And there's honestly such a huge list, but for a start, early on, police were also investigating other individuals who had appointments with Teresa that day. They weren't only investigating Stephen. 
However, making a murderer edited police phone calls, not only making it sound like Stephen was their only suspect, but that he was in custody earlier than he actually was. Sean's project also sets the record straight about exactly who Stephen was suing in his civil suit. It wasn't the officers who found the RAV4's key in his trailer. It was Manitowoc County, the former sheriff, Thomas Kukarek, and former DA Dennis Vogel. And no one was personally at risk of losing any money, so there was minimal motive to frame Stephen in the first place. The lawsuit, which Stephen settled for $400,000 in February of 2006, before Brendan's confession, was paid from insurance, because there is no proof that back in 1985, police intentionally framed Stephen. One big false narrative is that Andrew Colburn and Tom Fossbender were being sued over uh, Stephen's wrongful imprisonment for the uh, sexual assault that he didn't commit. They were not being sued. Andrew Colburn was questioned and Lieutenant Link was questioned because Andrew Colburn, when he worked as a jailer, not as a police officer, took a call from someone saying, I think you have the wrong guy. He forwarded it to the detective bureau. And years later, he mentioned it. Boy, I wonder if Stephen Avery was what, who they were calling about. He brought that up. If you were hiding it, why would he go ahead and bring that up years later? But he brought it up and they wrote up a statement regarding that. That's a big mischaracterization. When I watched it, I thought they were being sued. I was like, oh my God, the defendants are in there planning evidence to save their own rear ends. And that wasn't the case at all. Making a murderer makes it look like Minnetowoc County was never meant to be involved in this investigation. Yet it was them who requested Calumet County take over. It was them who said, hey, let's have this other county do it to avoid any conflict of interest issues. So if they wanted to plant evidence, why would they hand over this investigation to another county? It just doesn't really make sense when they handed the case over to preserve the integrity of the case in the first place. And many people, including Stephen, claim that the RAV4 key was planted and wonder how it could have gone undetected on six previously occasions when police accessed the trailer. Because making a murderer made it seem like there are seven separate open-ended thorough searches of the trailer, but these weren't searches in the pure sense of the word. Police entered the trailer previously to see specific items as quickly as possible. They were there to see Stephen's porn from a small cabinet. And when the RAV4 key was found, it wasn't laying on the floor in full view the entire time, the way making a murder made it sound. And one of the most alarming flaws in making a murderer was the way that the trial footage was edited together, giving an inaccurate representation of what occurred during witness testimony in the courtroom. This included responses by one officer to certain questions being spliced in multiple times to make it look like he was reacting in a shifty way to completely different questions, making it appear that he was lying or he was uncomfortable, which wasn't the case. And it even made it appear that he was providing certain answers to questions which didn't happen the same way at all during the trial. Another officer who testified at trial about finding the intact bullet in Stephen's garage had the word flattened inserted into his description of the bullet from another part of his testimony. This made it sound like the bullet was flat and not intact. It's one thing to edit something out, citing time constraints or something like that, but to edit something in to give it a completely different meaning, to have it seem as though he's giving conflicting statements when he actually hadn't, I mean, it's dishonest. We had to watch every courtroom scene in Making a Murderer and then find the native pool footage that the news media had of the court trial and realize that they spliced in an answer or they deleted an objection 
Same thing with depositions. They added answers and depositions. They completely changed context. In one case, they created a three-minute segment from 40 fragments to create a statement that never, ever was made. They answered questions that weren't answered. They claimed they didn't have enough time to include everything. If you're going to use a government proceeding that's been read into the record and has profoundly affected people's lives, you can't change it. You just can't. There's no excuse. You can shorten it if you don't change the meaning, and you better dip the black to wink to the audience to let them know you shortened it. But don't just splice something together or change to a different angle and act like that was just a pure, uninterrupted statement when it wasn't. That's the line they crossed. And I don't think anybody should ever be able to do that. You should have to dip to black. The audience knows it's an edit when you dip to black for a second. Making a murderer excluded other key details, such as Teresa's electronics being found in the burn barrel and her jean rivets and Stephen's tools being found in the burn pit. It also left out the fact that the bullet with Teresa's DNA was fired from the rifle hanging over Stephen's bed. It also left out that Stephen's sweat and contact DNA was found beneath the hood latch and handle of the RAV4. The omissions continue, with making a murderer failing to acknowledge that FBI mitochondrial DNA testing proved the charred remains were Teresa's, or that on multiple occasions during Brendan's apparent coerced confession, he actively rejected suggestions that he killed Teresa. One of the biggest revelations the documentary omitted about the blood vial from Stephen's previous case was the discovery that the hole in the top wasn't from somebody removing blood with a syringe. Instead, a phlebotomist testified that she injected blood into the vial from a syringe after Stephen's 1996 blood test, which was a common mechanism for inserting blood into vials. Right, and eventually the defense completely dropped this blood planting angle after further testing of the sample found in Teresa's car revealed that an anticoagulant, which was added to the sample in Stephen's vial in 1996, was missing. So to paraphrase here, Basically, when this blood was put in this vial, an anticoagulant was added. So, therefore, if that same blood was planted, that anticoagulant should have been present. And it was not. In Making Your Murderers pushed to present Stephen Avery as an innocent party who had been framed by the police, it also left out key disturbing details about his past. Turns out Stephen had been known to law enforcement since he was a young man. In 1980, 18-year-old Stephen Avery broke into a bar in Marinette County on three separate occasions, ultimately completely trashing the premises. He and a friend also broke into some local homes, stealing various items including firearms and hunting knives. And it was so bad that Stephen's own dad reported him to police, and he was ultimately convicted and served 10 months before being released on probation. Something else making a murderer glossed over was Stephen's history of animal cruelty. In late 1982, the 20-year-old poured gas on his cat and told two of his friends to throw it onto a bonfire. When the cat tried to escape from the fire, Stephen doused it again and threw it back in. Stephen got nine months in jail over this incident of animal cruelty. But in a separate incident, he punished his dog for running away by driving along, dragging the animal from the car on a chain. And that's not all. We just found a police report after we released it that he chained his infant child to a car. Didn't drive it, but chained him to a car to, so he wouldn't run away. 
It didn't matter whether it was animals or people. Stephen was violent. He threatened and harassed people, including his own family, if they pissed him off. He thought he was invincible. To minimize all the evil things he did leading up to that, that would have given people a little bit of background to know that maybe someone like that is someone who can't control their impulses, is capable of a crime like this, especially when they felt like they had superpowers uh, because they were wrongfully convicted and they thought they can get away with anything. And that's what his own family, his own brother told me that. He thought he can get away with anything. Stephen was physically violent with his wife, Lori, who he married in 1982. But at the same time, he was stalking a former girlfriend and was violent with his sister, Barbara. In early 1985, a 22-year-old Stephen ran his cousin Sandra's car off the road, claiming that she was spreading rumors about him exposing himself on his front lawn. And let me tell you, he probably did that. So yeah, <laughs> those weren't rumors, I'm guessing. Stephen threatened Sandra with a gun, but thankfully she and her baby daughter got away. In return, Stephen got six years in prison for possessing a firearm and endangering safety, which ran concurrently with his longer sentence for the later sexual assault and attempted murder, for which he was wrongfully convicted. Stephen's disturbing behavior continued in prison. He coerced his young teenage brother Earl into having sex with Lori while Stephen listened on the phone. After Lori left Stephen in 1987, he wrote to their kids saying he was going to kill Lori when he got out of prison. When Stephen was released, he allegedly engaged in inappropriate touching with his minor nieces and nephews, including Brendan. He allegedly sexually assaulted his 17-year-old niece around 2004, which was being investigated at the time Teresa disappeared. He'd also threatened his new girlfriend, Jody that if she ever left him, he'd kill her and her family. So with all of this additional context, let's get back to Teresa. Before she disappeared, she'd been out to the salvage yard on five previous occasions since that June. She had enough interactions with Stephen to know that he creeped her out big time, and on one occasion, he answered the door just wearing a towel. Teresa told people she was uncomfortable around Stephen, and it appears he knew this because he'd previously booked an appointment on September 19th under his brother-in-law's name. On the day that Teresa disappeared, which is another thing you don't see in Making a Murderer, she left a voicemail with the contact number on the booking asking for the specific property address at the salvage yard. And remember, she thought she was meeting somebody who wasn't Stephen, given the name of the booking was his sister. And that same day, Stephen called Teresa's cell phone three different times, but he used the Star 67 feature to block his number, proving that he knew she wouldn't attend if she knew that it was him. Sean reached out to Teresa's family as part of his project. They chose not to participate, but they were happy for Sean to move forward. Given the intense speculation and scorn they've also endured as a result of making a murderer and the disgusting way the public came for the grieving family. They were openly attacked and accused on social media, so it's no surprise that they want to maintain their privacy. We kind of, through a third party, got a partial blessing to move forward with this. We asked them to be interviewed and they declined. They knew the record had to be set straight for the sake of law enforcement. The record had to be set straight for the sake of their family. People accused the family of being involved. We had a Q&A section on our website for a while. Someone sent me a question and said, this question is for Teresa. How could you go on living on a beach in South America while someone is wrongfully imprisoned? These are the kind of things that people believe. I think they were re-victimized. They went through hell when Making a Murder came out. And as I've said multiple times, we probably ripped the scar off a little too. But hopefully this is the final healing for them. I hope they think we did the family and Teresa herself justice. People lost sight of the real victim here and her family were victims as well. 
Sean's ultimate hope for convicting a murderer is that people become more mindful about how they consume true crime content. Sean hopes that one day there's some code of ethics for documentarians and filmmakers to follow. But this is difficult given documentary is perceived as an art form. And unlike law enforcement, lawyers, and news reporters, there's no specific code of ethics for filmmakers. Do we become part of investigations? Do we affect cases? Yes. I'm pretty sure I'm the only filmmaker to have walked three people out of prison. I know that as a television director and producer, we've put 13 people away through tips. We've helped law enforcement arrest over 50 would-be child rapists over the past year. So yeah, we're, we, we are part of it. But with that comes an immense, immense responsibility. And the problem is, you know, law enforcement has a code of ethics. The legal profession has a code of ethics. Pure journalism has a code of ethics. Filmmakers don't really have a code of ethics. I couldn't abide by the Society of Professional Journalist standards because I, I believe in paying subjects because we're making money off of them and they don't allow that. That can't be the same standards as journalists, but it has to be sort of a hybrid. You have to make sure you're telling the truth. You have to acknowledge if you're paying someone, you have to acknowledge who's paying for the movie. What if the state of Wisconsin gave us millions of dollars to make this series? They didn't. They didn't give us a penny, but that would have to have been disclosed. In this case, it's just a bunch of car dealers and bankers and apartment building owners from where I'm from in Cleveland, Ohio, who backed this up. But had it been someone who had a dog in the fight, it should be disclosed. So there, there are probably five or six things that should be declared. Do you have a point of view? Who paid for this? Were people paid to sit down? Who did you ignore? You know, Who did you not listen to? Are you including all the facts? Where can you find more information? That all has to be disclosed at the, at the beginning or at the end of a documentary or docu-series. You have to be transparent about that. My goal at the end of the series was that this creates enough of a groundswell that filmmakers get together and create a voluntary code of ethical standards that we can adopt so that the public is ensured that we're not bending facts in our storytelling for the sake of a good plot. I'm hoping the groundswell happens. It hasn't yet, but I'm really hoping it does. 34-year-old Brendan Dassey won't be eligible for parole until 2048, and despite fleeting hope that his conviction would be overturned for good, his multiple appeals have ultimately failed to gain traction. So would he be in prison if it weren't for Stephen Avery? Many people, including his family, think probably not, and that Brendan was manipulated and coerced into getting involved in Teresa's sexual assault and murder. And his conviction has sparked important conversations around coercion of minors as it relates to appropriate interrogation techniques. As for the now 61-year-old Stephen Avery, his latest request for a new trial was denied in August of 2023. But at the time of this recording, his attorney Kathleen Zellner is believed to be taking this decision to the Wisconsin Court of Appeals. If he won $100 million in the lottery and talked to 10 legal experts and said, who should I hire? they would say, keep the same attorney you have. There's no one better for him right now. So if anybody can get him out, she can. She's done miracles in the past. She got some people out who were wrongfully convicted. I don't know if anything's going to be successful, but he's he's pretty much got the best team he can have. For the record, Sean told us what he thinks about the guilt of Stephen and Brendan. There are people who believe he's innocent who are on both sides of the aisle. There are people who think he's guilty who are on both sides of the aisle. Were it not for Stephen Avery, Brendan Dassey would never have been involved. Were it not for Stephen Avery, Brendan Dassey probably would have had no more than a 
speeding ticket in his adult life. But unfortunately, Brendan was involved. And unfortunately, Brendan knew wrong from right because he told his mother in a phone call, I would have gotten in trouble if I would have called 911. Because if one of the versions of the story is correct, Brendan could have saved Teresa. And he's probably the only person who could have. So he knew right from wrong. He had the the ability to save her. With that being said, a lot of people don't like hearing this because he likely did not premeditate any of this. And because he was a juvenile, I believe he's done enough time. And they should let him get out and have some semblance of a partial normal life. Unfortunately, he hasn't taken what's been offered to him, even allegedly recently, that could have gotten him out. So that's his lot in life. And of course, Sean's biggest message, as is ours, is a reminder to always consume true crime responsibly. I would encourage anybody who listens to true crime podcasts or who watches a true crime docuseries or documentary to do your own fact checking. Resources are out there. Try and get to the bottom of it. Make sure you're being told the truth. And if you're not being told the truth, call them out. We went through almost 10 attorneys reviewing this material and we fact checked multiple times. So we stand by it. Could we have made mistakes? Possibly. But check our work. Check everybody's work. It's very important to do that. Be careful when you're watching a series. You could be being toyed with. Your emotions could be being manipulated, even with the music. Just always be leery, as you would in any other area of life, when taking your child to a park. Be just as leery when when you're letting someone into your mind. Like we said, this episode is not to convince you about Stephen Avery's guilt one way or the other. But if you consume any true crime content, today's episode is a stark reminder of how important it is to be media literate when taking in material that claims to be impartial. A huge thank you to Sean and a reminder to go check out his new documentary, Convicting a Murderer. You can watch the first two episodes for free on dailywire.com, where you can also subscribe to watch the other eight episodes in this compelling new series, which includes unedited scenes and exclusive interviews with those on both sides of the case. And if you are listening out there and you have a story to tell, please email us hello at the first degree podcast.com. No story is too small or insignificant. Follow us on Instagram, join our Facebook group. We are talking true crime all the time. Join our Patreon if you're looking for more true crime first degree content and stick around tomorrow because we will have a bonus episode of Patreon and Killing Time is coming back ASAP. Right. And our Instagram is at the first degree at Alexis Linkletter at Jack Vanek. And remember, only you can prevent serial killers. And keep your friends close. But not that close. Shout out to Jared Monaco for scoring original music for The First Degree, producing by Caitlin Cleland, writing and research by Gemma Harris. Sources for this episode are Court Documents, The Post Crescent, Milwaukee Magazine, WBAY News, The New York Times, People Magazine, The New Yorker, The Guardian, The New York Post, Newsweek, Deadline.com, The Oxygen Network, Rolling Stone, The Washington Post, Inside Edition, and Fox 11 News. And remember, as always, our first degree guest is always our largest source.